I'm David Cancel, CEO and co-founder of Drift. These are our mission and values. This is a podcast about remarkable startup cultures, why they work so hard, and the shared principles that guide them. I'm your host, Brian Landers. The best company cultures continue to evolve, so the details you'll hear today are just a still life of a living company. Today, I'm talking to David Cancel, the CEO and co-founder of Drift. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what is Drift? Sure. Drift is a SaaS application for businesses to communicate with their customers. So if you have a website, a mobile app, or a web app, you can put Drift on there so that you can talk to your customers in real time and you can send them messages either one-to-one or one-to-many, meaning off to a group of customers. Got it. And to get some context on the size of your culture, about how many employees and locations do you have now? We're about 17 people and uh, we are all except for one, co-located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have one developer who works out of Spain. Interesting. I might bring that up later. (laughs) Um, Before we get into that, though, I'm really excited to learn about the mission of Drift. So what is the purpose that you and your team work towards each day? Sure. Our mission is to help everyone on Earth know, grow, and amaze their customers. Love it. Very succinct. Today, I want to focus primarily on Drift, but I'd be crazy not to ask you to share a bit about your past because you've already had such an incredible career. So how about this? I'll name a role in a company, and can you briefly share something you learned there about company culture that impacts what you're doing now at Drift? Let's do it. (laughs) Excellent. So you were once founder and CTO at Compete. Sure. I started Compete in 2000, and um, we grew that company from just a few of us to just under 200 when we were acquired. And so we went through, from a culture standpoint, a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, scaling at different levels. And uh, we had two twists, I think, in that business culturally. Uh, The first is that we were largely sold via enterprise sales. So we were a small company with a lot of uh, enterprise sales Uh, personalities or uh, people in the company. And then the second was that uh, we delivered our work through people who look like consultants or analysts. And so we had a lot of ex-Bain, BCG, kind of McKinsey, hard-charging consultants on the team as well. Founder and CTO at Lookery. So Lookery, we were a totally virtual company. Uh, We were probably around 20 people. I think it was really hard uh, to be a company that was uh, remote, yet we had an office here in Cambridge. And so we had part of the company working out of an office and then the rest were virtual. And I found that it works much better for all of us to be remote or for all of us to be in the office. And when we try to do both, it becomes pretty difficult because people get left out of conversations and no matter how disciplined you are. And then uh, you have people who are virtual feeling, you know, second class. How about founder and owner at Ghostery? That one's easy. That was just me <laughs> working, uh, working at home and uh, really working on something that I, I looked at as kind of a side project or just fun uh, that took on a life of its own. And so I did that while hanging out in between two different companies that I started and 
I traveled a lot with my family, spent a month in California, spent uh, some time in Florida. My daughter was pretty young at the time, and so we got to travel along, and I got to kind of work uh, nomadically for a little while. How about CEO and founder at Performable? So we were um, Performable, we were about 20 people when we got acquired by a company called HubSpot. And so great, fantastic team. All of us worked together uh, in a single office. So I had learned that lesson from Lookery and applied it and really focused on bringing people in from a quality standpoint first, meaning that we were really looking for people who met kind of what we thought about it from our, our cultural values, like qualities that we cared about that they were scrappy, that they were hungry to prove themselves, that they were nice people and people that we wanted to be around, that they were kind of learning machines and that they wanted to grow and progress. And so we really hired uh, people like that and took a lot of chances on people and they all paid off and they were people who really outperformed um, anything that we could have imagined. How about Chief Product Officer at HubSpot? So totally different again. So when I got to HubSpot, we were around 200 employees. By the time I left, we were weeks from going uh, public. And so you can imagine all the the craziness that that causes. And we were over a thousand people co-located in mostly in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then had offices in uh, Australia. Uh, We were about to open an office in Singapore, had a big office in Dublin, Ireland. And so we had all the challenges of remote teams and rapid scale. That was, you know, three and a half years when we went from uh, 200 to over a thousand. That's incredible. Now, your co-founder in his Twitter bio says, I build teams first, products follow. And on AngelList, his profile says, obsessed with building startup engineering teams. So who is your co-founder and how does this passion for team impact the company culture you're building together? Sure. So my co-founder's name is Elias Torres, and uh, we've been working together now for three companies. And uh, we both share that quality of wanting to build uh, companies by putting together teams first and then products later. And that's, you know, the the one thing that I've learned through all the companies uh, is that it's really 99% people and 1% everything else, including product. And I think the earlier version of me uh, would have thought it was kind of the other way around. Yeah, that's, that's a great insight. In terms of team size, when did you decide to codify your values at Drift? And why did you create shared values at all? We came together and worked on our values probably when we were well, we were talking about them, myself and Elias, even before we started the company. So what kind of company did we want to create? But by the time we codified them, we were probably three or four people. So pretty small. You know, that's something that most companies don't do and probably see as a luxury. And for us, we really wanted to put an emphasis on that and do it early uh, because we we feel it's so important to the company. And so we've seen it uh, become so hard to kind of retrofit after the fact. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, you know, with so much experience that you've had with all these other companies, it makes sense too that you'd, you'd have a lot of insights into building values more than most, you know, say first-time founders would. Yeah, definitely some pattern matching going on. And so we want to apply those lessons. Yeah. So take us inside Drift HQ there in Cambridge. Describe the vibe and, and what it's like to work there. Sure. So uh, at Drift, we're about 17 people. And 
Uh, it's a fantastic place to work. You know, we, we're trying to create the place that we want to come to and be at every day. And, you know, when we think about hiring new people on the team, one of the first things that we're thinking about is, uh, or we're looking for, I should say, is that, is this someone that we want to spend time with? Is this someone that we want to be around? And if so, does this person help us grow? Our core value at Drift is, is really built around learning. And so we are always, trying to learn, trying to get better. And we're looking to find people who kind of share that same value and, and want to grow both personally and professionally. And so you can imagine at Drift, we're all super curious. We're all, uh, we all get along. We all have fun together. I, I, I try to think of it as kind of we work hard, play hard, and it's just a fun thing. So if you were to walk in, you'd see uh, murals painted on the wall that we had artists paint. You'd see uh, gymnastics rings hanging from the ceiling. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, some of, We try to do muscle-ups. None of us can actually do them, but we do pull-ups <laughs> and we do lots of other uh, moves. And you'd see, um, you know, we have the requisite ping-pong table. And uh, that ping pong table came from uh, my co-founder's yard, actually. So he has this great uh, ping pong table and he brought it in this winter. And uh, he doesn't know this yet, but he's not getting it back because everyone <laughs> loves it. Yeah. And then uh, and then you could see lots and lots of uh, drift, either drawings or pictures or other images that we've created uh, hanging throughout the office and uh, it's just a fun place to be and there's music uh, blasting at all times and uh, you know whether it's Drake or uh, or something else there's music blasting and everyone's having fun. Nice that's cool and what's been the hardest thing about growing the team at Drift so far for you? Yeah, this, you know, it always, some things get easier over time. So you get patterns. And so, and for us, it's easier for us to recruit because uh, we know a lot of people here in, in the Boston area. But what has been hard is something that I think about a lot, which is um, finding the right person at the right stage, you know, who's coming in at the right stage. And here's what I mean by that. So it's easy to screen for, you know, does someone have a certain skill? Does someone have certain experience? you know, someone likable or someone that would fit well within the team. And so these are the three things that, you know, all of us are screening for or looking for when we're talking to new people uh, who may join the team. But there's a fourth one that's super important right now at this stage, which is, you know, are they right for this stage? Meaning, is their experience and their skill set, the first two, right for this stage of business? And if you ignore the stage part, and I have a couple of times, then you end up with a person who won't fit. And they may fit uh, from a personality standpoint, and so you love being around them. They fit because they have great skills and they have great experience, but their experiences and skills are not right for this stage. And so an example might be someone who's coming from a you know 1,000 to 5,000 person company who is a great person, has great skills, has great experiences, but those two last two may not be applicable in your stage if you're a zero to 25 person startup. And so you really have to think about the stage that someone is ready for. Because if you bring them in and they have the first three, which are great, and they're the wrong stage, everything you're setting them up for failure, right? And so most things that they're going to do may be 100% correct at a different stage. 
and they will be wrong at this stage and they will not know why they're not being successful. It'll be hard for you to understand why they're, why they're making the decisions that they're making, uh, which are not right for your stage, but everything about them is correct. Do you think also that the, the values sort of help you assess that too? They do to a certain degree, uh, but stage is, is something that's a little, I don't want to say it's independent, but it's a little bit different because we have lots of values here and someone, uh, which we can talk about, and one of them is, uh, you know, if someone's hungry or scrappy, and so they may be hungry and scrappy, and they may have the right experiences and the right background, but even though they're hungry and scrappy and they want to do this stage, right, that's why they're they're coming here, their experiences just might be too far from where we are today. And, you know, it might be too big of a jump for them to make from that big company to the smaller company in the amount of time that you need them to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Well, let's dive into your values. What's the first value you have to share today? Uh, being customer driven. You know, it's especially important in, at Drift because uh, our mission is to help everyone know, grow, and amaze their customers. So we're building software to help our customers help their customers. And for us, customer-driven means that if we were to kind of rank ourselves internally along with the customer, that the customer is always at the top of that kind of inverted pyramid or funnel shape. So you can imagine that the customer is at the top, individual contributors on the team are right under them. And then the higher your title is, the lower you are on that on that totem pole, right? And so like, you know, with me being at the very bottom. And what that means in practice is that uh, we put our customers first, everything from the way that we develop code to the way that we release code to the way that we design and test uh, changes to the way that we market or sell is customer driven and puts the customer ahead of us. Is that, by the way, that description you just gave, is that what people talk about when they talk about servant leadership? Yes. So, uh, yes, so with one, one little twist. So I'm a long-time believer and practicer of servant leadership. And so in servant leadership, you would have that same funnel that I described, or that inverted pyramid, uh, but at the very top would be your individual contributors on your team. And so what we've done is taken that model and uh, tweaked it by putting the customers at the very top. Aha, got it. You've said before, being customer-driven and having a great culture, they're the same. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, to me, they're the same, being customer-driven and having this great culture internally. At the end of the day, you know, the reason for us to create a business, for anyone to create a business, is to uh, satisfy a need and deliver value to customers, right? That is why all businesses exist. That's the definition. And so how do you take that definition and how do you align people within your company to do the right thing for their customers? And if when you have people who are properly aligned, then they're generally happier because they know what they're doing has a direct effect on the value of the company or the value of the company to the customer. And so I think By being customer-driven and having everything stem from the very beginning from the customer and their values, you're by definition generating the most value that you can for your company. And, And that tends to make cultures happier and more productive. What's an example of a teammate at Drift being exceptionally customer-driven? 
Sure. We can pick any, but I'm going to pick the one that is usually the, the least customer-driven in most organizations, and that's the engineering team. If you look at most software engineering teams, they are the team that is hard to measure, right? It's hard for, for you to look at a engineering team and really measure their productivity, especially on a engineer-by-engineer basis. Um, it's always a controversial thing to try to do. Uh, they are the ones that are usually uh, the most removed from day-to-day customer conversations. And so they'll usually go through product managers and designers and salespeople and marketing people and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so at Drift and at Performable before this, which is where we started this idea, we have we make sure that all engineers talk to customers if not every day, at least many times a week. And so they'll do that by picking up the phone, or in our case, people don't call us, they actually use our product. And so they'll chat directly with customers if the customers have questions. Uh, they'll reach out to them, they'll email them, they'll talk to them in person if they can. And so we believe in everyone, including every engineer, having lots of contact with the customer so that they have context to understand why they're building the things that they're building, who they're building them for, and when they are or they aren't successful. Mm -hmm. Now, I think your next value gives us some hints as to the type of person that might be a good fit for Drift's culture. Let's hear about that one. The next value is hungry and scrappy. For us, we always have something to prove. We have this big mission that we're trying to fulfill. And so we're trying to find people who are hungry to prove themselves, hungry to make a name for themselves and hungry to improve and who are scrappy and how they get that done. And scrappy for us, you know, some people think about it as grit. Some people call it lots of different things. I prefer scrappy. And it's really, you know, someone who uh, will tell you like when you ask them to do, do the impossible, they'll say, I'll figure out how to get that done. And, uh, and they'll just go off and get it done somehow. Yeah, that's an impressive trait. This seems like one of those values that's like very ingrained in the DNA of a company. So what, what's the origin of this value? At Drift and then at my previous company, Performable, Elias and I wanted to create an environment that, you know, felt like, in some ways felt like um, the way that we do. We wanted, we wanted to be around like-minded people. And so uh, we were looking at, at our traits and, you know, being scrappy and hungry uh, were a big part of it. And the more that we thought about it, the more we thought it was an important value to have because in starting an early stage company, it is super difficult and it is much more difficult than many of us um, remember or many of us believe. And uh, and if you don't have that certain uh, level of hunger, then it's too easy to kind of give up. It's too easy to quit in the middle of kind of this journey because it's just, it's not rational, right? Creating something from nothing is not the logical thing to do. You need that hunger to get you through the, you know, the ebbs and flows that you're going through each day. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you tell me about a time when someone on the team exemplified that the sort of scrappiness that you guys strive for there? I think uh, we all do in different ways, but my co-founder, Elias, probably exemplifies it the most. And um, he's just one of those guys who will, no matter what, will figure out a way, will, you know, run through walls, will run over walls, mm -hmm. will uh, do anything possible to make something happen. And uh, whether it's, you know, recruiting, which he's famous for, 
at HubSpot where we were before Drift when we would have new people stand up and tell us how they how we found them or how they came to HubSpot. It always started with a story about Elias and Elias showing up, you know, at their house on a Sunday night <laughs> and uh, talking to them. And so no matter what, you know, he was going to get it done. And, uh, and so that's why even in that larger company context, he epitomizes uh, being scrappy. That's great. You raised a sizable Series A, something to the tune of $15 million, mm-hmm. from some great investors. How do you remain hungry and scrappy knowing that you have that money in the bank? And <laughs> what's the advantage of doing so? Uh, you know, I think for me, um, for me, it's just core to who I am. I'm, I'm always hungry and I'm always looking to get better. And no matter how many things I've done, I, I always think that I'm kind of still the the very beginning of being a student and so uh so we've had some successes and we have uh are very lucky and we've been able to raise a lot of money and so we have we remove some of the pressures that some other companies of our size may have uh but you know i i look at something like raising money as as great and nice but like we really uh put that money to the side and really focus on kind of learning and progressing ourselves. And, uh, and if, you know, if I weren't hungry, I wouldn't have started another company at this point. You know, I could have uh, stayed home and hung out with my kids and, uh, and been very happy doing that. And it's really this hunger that I have internal uh, inside of me and that Elias shares, uh, to kind of, you know, have something to prove and still think that we want to create something meaningful, something that is going to last and something that our, you know, kids will be proud of. And so you need that hunger to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'm excited to learn more about the next value you share just because it sounds like there's a story behind it. So can you share the next one with us? Sure. The next one is, um, resilience. And um, and it kind of touches on something I mentioned when we were talking about being hungry and scrappy, and it's it's resilience is really having you know faced adversity and understood that you may lose sometimes, but being able to pick yourself up and continue the fight, and uh, you know touches on what I was saying before about startups being. Uh, too difficult. And even, you know, later stage as you scale the company, it's a really difficult time. There's a lot to do and a lot to learn. And so you need that high level resilience to be able to face when, when you fail and being able to pick yourself up and, and keep going. Yeah. And when I, when I see a value like this, I really get the sense that, you know, there was some hard earned experience behind it. Was there any kind of, you know, singular experience or maybe just an example of one that this value is referring to? You know, what adversity did you face? Well, <laughs> uh, countless examples of uh, adversity. And I think, you know, what really formed this, this value for us is in the past, um, being able to work with some amazing people who, um, for whatever reason, weren't able to uh, continue uh, working with us because uh, they couldn't uh, keep up the pace. They couldn't keep up the, the level of progression that needed to happen in this phase. And, you know, being fantastic people and, and friends, um, you know, it was hard to see that. And so we wanted a value that we were looking for early on so that people didn't have to go through that painful lesson of of figuring out that they, they maybe weren't up for this stage. Mm-hmm. 
I think the wording of it is is interesting because you only imply but not explicitly mention failure. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't say fail fast. Mm-hmm. Your focus is on moving forward. Is that by design? Yeah, I think um, I kind of I understand the, the the fail fast kind of mantra and I probably have said it uh, a number of times myself. Uh, but the point is not to fail. The point is to learn. And the point is to keep going. And I think, you know, I, I always uh, mention this Warren Buffett quote, which I love, which uh, where he says that um, everyone learns through failure. It just doesn't have to be your own. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you can learn from others, whether that's through books or mentors or role models um, or just people that you meet or articles that you read. There's no reason that you have to learn everything yourself through failure. And so that's why that's why I don't use the word failure too much because I think it puts the emphasis on the wrong part. The, the part you need to focus on is the resilience to be able to keep going and knowing that you're going to fail and, and not give up because of that. And then the learning that happens through the failure. How do you know someone you know, when you're looking to hire someone new at Drift, has the resiliency required to thrive there? Hmm. It's a hard one to kind of tease out, but we're looking and we're talking a lot about past experiences, whether it was in school or at other jobs or startups that they started or whatever their experiences in, in the background in life or even the way that they were brought up or their family life and just looking for clues of kind of that resilience and being able to do something, doing the improbable. And again, I'll use my co-founder, Elias, as an example. Uh, you know, he grew up in Nicaragua, you know, during kind of uh, the communist uh, days and then came to the U.S. and when he was in his early teens, taught himself English, uh, you know, worked at McDonald's, uh, did every kind of crazy job you can imagine, put himself through school, got married, got his master's at Harvard, uh, on and on and on, and just everything was improbable, right? It was like, had no, no business doing the things that he did, but he managed to do them somehow. And I'm only giving you the very high level highlights there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look around at our team, you see a lot of people that look like, like Elias. That's interesting. I mean, that makes me want to ask the question, you know, how do you think about diversity, you know, within the team at Drift? Mm. Uh, we think about it. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about it, you know, looking for people who, who are, you know, who are different, ha- trying to have a more balanced um, kind of culture and team, you know, that looks more like the world does at large and not like most technology companies. You know, both Elias and I are, uh, you know, I like to say we're both ESL people, you know, English as a second language. Mm-hmm. And so I was born in the United States, but I grew up in, uh, I grew up in the South Bronx and then I, I lived in Queens in New York, you know, for most of my life. But my, both my parents emigrated to the U.S. and I you know, only spoke Spanish until I was five. And then I, you know, pretty sure I learned English watching television. Ah, that's a great way to learn. <laughs> yeah, watching lots of reruns. And so, and then Elias uh, taught himself, as we talked about, as he came here to the U.S. And so, that's what we look like. And so, uh, we look, try to recruit other people um, who are diverse, whether they're female engineers or female executives or what have you. We really think about diversity and having a diverse culture and diverse team. And again, I think it's like cultural values. It's a, It's hard to focus on that when you're 500 people, when you're 100 people, because it's too late. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
um, this, this topic of learning and, you know, learning languages or learning, you know, from each other and new techniques, it's definitely core to you guys there at Drift. Mm-hmm. I think you have a value around that. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. Um, our fourth value, we think about as being students and teachers. You know, core to our value here is learning and growing. But that's not only learning on our own, but learning from each other. And so we always feel like there, we should both be a teacher, but also be humble enough to still yet be the student and be able to learn, never stop that learning progress. Do you actually sort of, you know, formally facilitate people teaching each other? Do you do, do you have like, you know, internal uh, workshops or presentations or anything? Yeah, we have a, a number of things that we do. One, we we're you know, kind of have an informal uh, book club where we're always recommending books. And, uh, and then if there are books that I think the team will really, the entire team would really benefit from, then I will, uh, usually purchase that book, a copy of that book for everyone on the team. You know, the ideas in those books become part of our culture and we, we talk about them. And then we have each month, uh, we're lucky that, uh, we know a lot of great and, you know, accomplished people in the area and even outside the area. And so whether they're advisors or mentors or friends, and so we have uh, a person come in each month and kind of do like a lunch and learn. And so the whole team is there and we get to, we record part of it as a podcast so that we can share that learning with the world, right? Part of what, you know, our culture is around learning, but that's not only for ourselves. We want to share that learning with our customers, with friends, and just with the world. Uh, and then there's a, a part of it that is like closed question and answer that we don't record that is just kind of internal questions that people may have. Um, and so we do things like that and we do offsites where we think about learning as well and it's uh it's kind of it's so embedded into everything that we do here it's almost hard to kind of point at you know the things that we do do because everything has learning intertwined into it yeah yeah and by the way just so people know what's the name of that podcast Uh, that podcast is called seeking wisdom excellent okay i'll link that up in the show notes i've been really enjoying it so i think people should go check that out What's an example of someone on the team being obsessed with learning and growth? Uh, everyone here is. So um, let's see who's a good example. We have um, we have interns who and co-ops who join us even for uh, part of the year uh, who are just as obsessed with learning. And so you know, with some of them, I spend time um, kind of trading back and forth, kind of books that we're reading and highlights that we make in those books and, you know, meaning passages that we're highlighting and, and then we do one-on-ones and uh, we'll usually talk about those books. And so, um, and that's with everyone on the team. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like a very literary culture there. (laughs) Your obsession with learning has clearly been, you know, a driving force in your career in terms of deciding what companies to start, deciding when to move to new opportunities. How do you make sure the people you're hiring share that and can hang with that level of intensity? And how do you make sure they keep learning at Drift? Hmm. Uh, one thing that um, that we that I would do at Performer, I did it at HubSpot extensively, and I do it at Drift, is that we have this kind of religion of having one on that everyone has one on ones on the team, and during those one on ones, one of the main things that I'm spending time talking about is that person's personal progression. So what do they want to learn? Are they growing? Um, are they starting to kind of 
stall out. And, you know, I see it as my job to try to be ahead of that person. And so I find, you know, the worst thing that would happen is that could happen is if that person ever came to me and said that they, they wondered what was next or that they were bored with what they were doing. And, you know, that would be terrible because that meant that I wasn't staying ahead of that person. And so I'm really focusing on their personal progression. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that and making sure that they're growing and making sure to, in some cases, push them into new roles, gently push Mm -hmm. them, uh, when we think it's time for them to kind of go to the next level or learn the next thing. And, uh, and sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's, it's hard. And, uh, but we really want to focus on their progression, even if times, you know, in the past, it might mean that their progression means that they should move to somewhere outside of the current company, right? I look at all of these relationships, uh, as just that relationships. And so they do not start and end at Drift. They do not start and end at HubSpot or whatever company. I really see them as kind of lifelong relationships. And so, you know, I try to focus on their progression and, and even when that painfully means that, uh, that they should probably go start their own thing or go to do their next kind of adventure. Do you have a, a sort of, you know, personal take on Reed Hoffman's tour of duty in the Alliance concepts? Yeah, I love it. I love, I, you know, I think, um, it's one of those books that, um, and one of those ideas that, well, one I love because, uh, it kind of reinforces something that has been, that I've experienced and that is kind of the way that I've acted and, uh, and I think makes sense. But, you know, he's able to kind of say it in, in such a better way than, than I just said it, mm-hmm. right? This idea of this tour of duty. And so when someone can crystallize something like that, that you've kind of had bouncing around in your head and you've kind of been doing and, and they put it in these words that just makes it so clear, then you just, it's one of those like giant light bulbs or fireworks, you know, were, were blasting above my head when I was reading that of just like, yes, this is, this is exactly what we've been doing and exactly what we've been thinking. It's right here. We weren't crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the same with, you know, lean startup techniques and practices. It, it's a lot harder to implement them and live them than to, to simply read them or, oh, yeah. or even understand them. Right. Mm-hmm. I always think I always come back. And one thing that we're always talking about internally is that is this idea of simple, not easy. And I'm always saying that that's almost like a mini mantra and that really that the all of the things that we need to know and some of the, the most profound lessons that we need to learn are very simple. They're deceptively simple, but they're not easy. And this, you know, what we were just talking about there are, are two perfect examples of it. it's a simple concept and it is so painfully hard to actually live it. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, you, you get this sort of blindness to your own work and ideas. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your last value, which is really inspiring. And I like how you concluded the, the values you shared with this one. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Our last value is being grateful. And so, you know, the, the way that we talk about that is we say that we appreciate the opportunities that we have and we recognize that they are unique and that we are lucky to have them. And uh, this idea of gratitude uh, is super important, not only for us as a company, but for all of us individually. We've all, including myself, especially myself, I should say, have been super fortunate in my life. And, uh, and we need to make time each day to remember and to be grateful for, you know, that, that luck. 
Can you describe, you know, what's unique about the opportunity you're facing now? Yeah. So the, you know, for us, you know, one thing we need to appreciate is uh, something that we touched on earlier in the conversation, which is we've been able to, we're super fortunate that we have great friends and investors who have taken a big chance on us and invested a lot of money, $15 million, you know, in our very first uh, round of financing, which is not normal. Right. And, uh, and so we have more opportunities than most because of that investment. And so we, we need to recognize that and we need to understand that it's, it is unique and that we need to be grateful for that. At the same time, we have great people within our team that we work with each day. And, uh, and I've been around a lot of teams. And so I have the context to be able to look at that team and say, wow, you don't work with a team like this often. And, you know, so I'm grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome. What would you say is a metric that you track internally that affects team morale? We track a, a bunch of metrics. I'd say one uh, that we're constantly looking at is uh, a simple question of, you know, on a, on, a, on a one to 10 scale, how happy are you? And we track that every week. Uh, for, for customers, is that? Oh, uh, no, this is internally. This is for employees. Internally? Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. So each week, uh, you know, we rate ourselves on a one to 10 scale of how happy we're feeling that week. What have you learned from doing that? Oh, we, lots of things. One, we can get ahead when we start to see we have a history of someone's, you know, level of happiness at work and we see it change radically uh, in the wrong direction. It lets us kind of have a conversation with that person and kind of figure out what's going on and if we can help. Uh, and a lot of times you wouldn't see that until the person's you know, um, so frustrated that they're willing to come up to you and want to have a conversation about that. And it's usually too late. So, uh, that helps us a lot. We look at it on a, on an aggregate basis and to try to understand how is the team, is the team getting happier or are they staying the same or are things going in the wrong direction? And so we try to look at what's happening within the, the larger organization, uh, when we see changes in, in that morale. That's really great. I mean, it seems, seems like a very caring sort of environment, um, you know, like with the one-on-ones and then with, with that sort of tracking emotion. Well, we think everyone should be doing it. I mean, it's, uh, it just leads to a happier workplace, and, uh, and it takes almost no investment, and, uh, and it's, it really pays off. Yeah, it's, again, simple, not easy. <laughs> exactly. So simple. Everyone should do it. It costs pretty much nothing, uh, but no one does it. Yeah. Here's a quote that I love that you said in an interview. Culture is a funny thing that we like to talk about, but very few companies that I meet actually believe their culture. You can hire based on culture, but unless you're willing to fire based on culture, it's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, have you had to fire based on culture at Drift? Uh, Have we fired? We have not. uh, We have, actually. We have. Um, I had to think back. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have, and we have at HubSpot, and we had at Performable, and um, it's a hard one because usually when when that happens, it's um, if that person is still in the company, it probably means that they're a pretty good performer, and so you have someone who may be performing really well, maybe even have some friends within the organization, uh, but that there's something about them that is uh, doesn't mesh with our our overall culture, and so. 
uh, having to make a change and having to fire based on that is, is super difficult, especially when you're in a competitive environment and you're letting go of someone because, uh, because they don't match the culture. Do you think that being located in Cambridge, Massachusetts has any effect on the culture there in terms of being in the, a part of the larger tech scene? Um, hmm, good question. It's a hard one to answer because, um, I've had so many companies here in Cambridge for so long that um, in some ways I think that it doesn't matter because most of what we all do is online, right? And so it really doesn't matter where we are. But, you know, we because we've been in this area for so long and have had uh, many companies here, uh, we've been able to benefit from the larger kind of Cambridge um, environment and have a lot of friends who have helped us because of that. Uh, but we, you know, at the same time, I'd say we have as many uh, colleagues and friends in different areas, whether that's in the West Coast or whether that's in New York City or different parts of the world. And so I think there is a benefit there. But, um, but you know, really, we look at ourselves as a, as a global company. Tell me a story about a recent win that the whole team celebrated. Oh, good question. Um, so we we had a launch last week where we launched a, um, an integration that we did with Slack. Good feature. Yeah, so uh, we love it. And we had been using it ourselves for a long time. And we finally made it public. And so basically the idea is that anyone who has Drift in their website or mobile app uh, can talk to their uh, visitors or their customers uh, in real time through Slack. And so your team never has to leave Slack. Your customers never have to leave your website or your mobile app and not disrupting their flow. And so uh, we launched that last week and it was really big team effort. Um, we all came together to, to launch that and to announce that. And we had just had a tremendous um, response to it. And uh, we had, you know, we have targets for how many people were trying to sign up and get using our software. And we were like, on that day, like 350% of target. Wow. Uh, it was just amazing and insane. And so many conversations that we had with new customers because of that, it was just such a great launch. And, and that was one where the entire team was involved uh, before and after with that launch. And so that was a great one. Yeah. And are you the sort of team that, you know, buys a cake or something like that to, <laughs> to celebrate the moment? Yeah, uh, that day we didn't, you know, we were just, uh, heads down focused on it, but we went out, uh, the next night. And so we went out to this kind of like speakeasy bar here in, uh, in Boston and we went out and had drinks and, uh, had great food to celebrate. Uh, so we didn't have cake that time, but we usually have cake every time, uh, it is someone's birthday. We have cake or cupcakes, uh, that we bring in. Well, as long as there's cake, it's going to be all right. <laughs> now, I know you're a product lover, so I want to hear what's new at Drift. Was that feature you just mentioned, uh, Drift Messenger? Oh, yeah. So, well, Slack is one way that you can integrate into it. But you really, last month and into this month, our big push has been around. Uh, we released this free plan to Drift. And so that any anyone in the world can set up Drift on their website or their mobile app, and um, and they can do it totally free. And uh, they can integrate it into Slack. They can integrate it into MailChimp or Help Scout or HubSpot or any various other system. And that's entirely free. And you can talk to as many customers as you want for free. And then uh, we offer other things on top of that. But really wanted to make that free for anyone in the world who has a business to communicate in real time with their customers. Great. That's exciting. 
It sounds like a pretty fun team over there, Drift, and it's definitely inspiring to hear about your dedication to making customers happy and also just how you're making yourself smarter along the way. Uh, for people who love learning and love your mission, where can they find out more? Uh, you can go to drift.com. That's D-R-I-F-T.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Drift. And uh, you can uh, also hear us on Seeking Wisdom, which is our podcast that we put out that we try to share the lessons that we're learning uh, with the world. Thanks so much for your time today, David. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You can find show notes and sign up for the email list on missionandvalues.co. The theme song is by Shane Inslee. I want to know what you think of the show so far, so please come and find me. I'm at Brian Landers, that's Brian with a Y, on Twitter. And thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next time on Mission and Values. Mission and Values.